Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese. In our fortnightly interviews, we talk with philosophers about their ideas as elaborated in their newly published books. Today's interview is with Herman Capellan, Professor of Philosophy at the Arte Philosophical Research Center at the University of St. Andrews. His new book is Philosophy Without Intuitions, which came out this year from Oxford University Press. It's taken for granted among contemporary analytic philosophers that some of their primary areas of inquiry, ethics, epistemology, philosophy of mind, and philosophy of language in particular, involve a special characteristic methodology, one that depends essentially on the use of intuitions as evidence for philosophical positions. A thought experiment is developed in order to elicit intuitive judgments, and these judgments have a special epistemic status. Paradigm cases of this methodology include thought experiments by Gettier, in which we determine whether we intuitively think that the subject in the scenario has or does not have knowledge, or Putnam's twin earth cases, in which we claim, again intuitively, that while Oscar on earth thinks about H2O, his molecule-by-molecule duplicate on Twitter thinks about another item called XYZ. The new experimental philosophy movement also accepts that this methodology is in fact rampant and is premised on rejecting it by conducting real experiments rather than thought experiments to see whether we really do hold these intuitions or who does. Capellan argues argues that as a descriptive claim about the practice of philosophy, this is all false and muddled. The idea that intuitions play a critical role in contemporary analytic philosophy is a claim made by philosophers in moments of what he calls confused meta-reflection on their own practices. On his view, a detailed look at the thought or experiments themselves shows that the term intuition or intuitively, all of these uses of intuition talk don't have a single interpretation. In many cases, it's just an unfortunate verbal tick. In others, it means a claim is a snap judgment with no special epistemic status. In others, it just makes explicit some sort of background or pre-theoretic information that all parties to the dispute take for granted. What is not going on, he claims, is that the judgments elicited have bedrock epistemological status, are considered justified without appeals to experience or without inference, that inclinations to believe these judgments tend to be recalcitrant to further evidence, or that these judgments are based on conceptual competence or have a special phenomenology. So let's go to the interview. Uh, Hello, Professor Kaplan. Hello. Hi. Uh, Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, well, I'm very uh, excited to be talking about your new book, Philosophy Without Intuitions, because it's a it's a very challenging, uh, you know, critical look at the practice of contemporary analytic philosophy, a sort of sociology 
of philosophy. Um, before we get into the details of your of the book, um, maybe you could give us a little bit of background on how you came to to this topic and how you came to write the book. Well, I think all the work I've done in philosophy has been in part methodologically self-conscious. I, in, in fact, I think it's very hard to do any philosophy without thinking all the time about how we go about doing it. I think it's one of the characteristics of philosophy that we're constantly thinking about how to do what we're doing while we're doing it. So so from the very beginning when I started doing philosophy, these very general questions about how, how you could go about doing this, uh, th- those questions were always uh, central to me. In my first type of work, I... I first book was called Insensitive Semantics, and one of the topics of that book was what kind of evidence, what kind of data could be used to support certain kinds of theses about context sensitivity in natural language, and my thought about that book was that it was more or less entirely methodological. There was questions about how to go about adjudicating certain kinds of debates and what kind of data we should be focusing on and how to interpret that data. So, so thinking about methodology has been central, central to how I've done philosophy always. And I think to most good philosophy, most good philosophy is methodologically self-conscious. Um, about five years ago, I guess now, or four years ago, um, here at the Arche Center in San Andreas, I started a project with my colleague Jessica Brown on philosophical methodology. Um, it was a four-year project with weekly meetings, many, many workshops and conferences, all focused around questions uh, about metaphilosophy. And one of the core questions in that project had to do with the role of intuitions. Uh, most of the discussions we had about that topic were questions about whether intu- intuitions were the kinds of things that could be relied on as evidence in philosophy. Um, but my underlying suspicion from the beginning there was that, well, maybe maybe we should question more fundamentally whether it even is the case that philosophers rely on intuitions. I, I noticed that this was common ground in a lot of these debates uh, that people were having, uh, even among people who seem radically opposed to each other, like methodological rationalists like Beeler on the one hand and experimental philosophers like Stitch on the other hand, they had common ground in that they thought the fundamental method of philosophy was that of appealing to intuitions. And so I thought, well, you know, it would be worth trying to at least explore that that assumption. So the more I thought about it, the, the more implausible it seemed to me. And so I thought, uh, you know, I think it's worth trying to trying to write this this book and try at least to get people to be a bit more explicit about why they make that assumption before they make it and before they go on to create research projects uh, based on it. So, yeah, that's, that is the sort of more immediate um, background for the book. So um, you organize your, your critique of this idea. Um, you, you call the idea centrality, um, which claims roughly that um, intuitions and appeal to if it, intuitions are evidence or, or a source of evidence for philosophical theories. Um, 
and uh, you argue that it's false. You know, you present two main arguments um, against that uh, against that claim. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about um, your uh, your claim that centrality is false. There's there's no interpretation of it in which it's true of uh, much of mainstream analytic philosophy that intuitions do play a central role. Yeah, before I say why I think it's false, let me just say a bit what a, how the, the kind of picture that underlies the thesis that I call centrality is one that should be familiar, I think, to most practitioners of the profession and any, any of an undergraduates getting into the profession or into the subject. Mm-hmm. So here the picture is, is, is very, very natural when you read c- contemporary literature. It's that what we do as our most basic mythological tool at the be- at the starting point of theorizing there's an activity roughly like this we construct thought experiments or cases it might be about trolley trolleys it might be about twin earth they might be about bank cases they could be uh, yeah what, what zombies what, whatever your area is in there's some kind of uh, canonical set of cases mm-hmm. and then we just have some kind of immediate, spontaneous reaction to those cases, and those are intuitions. And now theorizing is the project of trying to make coherent, systematize, predict, whatever your model is of some some sort or other, this this sort of core group of judgments, the intuitive ones, that's what we're trying to capture. Um, And so on this picture, intuitions serve as evidence in philosophy, and philosophical theorizing has those kinds of judgments at the origin. What I found interesting is that this assumption that that's how we go about doing things is, I I think we should think of it as an empirical hypothesis. And that's, it's something to be checked whether that is what philosophers really do. And when you go and look into philosophical texts, and this is what I do. I think the the most interesting way to look at this is the second part of the book, when you go careful study of the kinds of cases where that's alleged to be what is going on, it just turns out it isn't what's going on. It isn't true that philosophers just construct cases and then have a kind of judgment that is naturally described, or even plausibly, in any level of plausibility described, as having an intuitive reaction to them. That just isn't what's going on. Now, it's fascinating, I think, the question why so many people think that's what's going on. Uh, that's a bit of a mystery to me. That, uh, why, why we are so... I, you know, if I'm right, there's a kind of very broad confusion about what we are actually doing. Uh, but that's a separate question. So the question you just asked was, what, what do I mean by saying is false? I just mean it as a purely as an empirical claim about the kinds of cases that are supposed to be paradigms of that method that I described. It just turns out they're not instances of that. Well, um, I mean, you discuss a, a couple of different uh, objections to that, but maybe we should get a particular thought experiment on the table just so we... We have something to, uh, to to make the discussion a little bit more concrete. Um, I mean, there's a number. I mean, as as you go through, uh, as you just mentioned in the, in this in part two of the book, uh, you run through in a very detailed way um, uh, particular 
paradigmatic thought experiments and what goes on in those. Um, you mentioned uh, David Chalmers, uh, you know, the conceivability of zombies. Uh, there's Putnam's Twin Earth. There's, of course, the Gettier cases. Um, so there, there's uh, Thompson's uh, violinist. Right? All of these cases appear to, as, as you just know, appear to involve constructing a case, a thought experiment, in order to elicit a judgment. Um, and then your response is that uh, in all of these cases, in various ways, the judgments that are elicited don't have certain features uh, that you uh, that you say that intuitions, if, if intuitions were playing a role, they would have these features, and and they don't. Um, so maybe you can explain that aspect of your of your critique. Yes. So that's that's the that's exactly how I go about doing things. So the picture that I had that I thought, well, I initially thought about, well, how would I go about checking that in all these cases where we're supposed to be relying on intuitions, that is what we are actually doing. And I thought, well, it, it would be helpful. Uh, it would be uh, reasonable to expect that there was some evidence to be found in written texts, for example, some diagnostics that would tell us that that is what's going on. So I, I read through the you know, very extensive literature on intuitions and philosophy. Now, it turns out there's hardly any agreement on what an intuitive judgment is. So the, the received view, the view that we're relying on intuitions, is 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 a very hard to interpret just because uh, different proponents of that view mean very, very different things by the intuitive or by an intuitive judgment. In fact, I guess my view is that, and I argue this in Chapter 6, I think it's Chapter 6, that that term is now so used in so many different ways and in so many confusing ways that it's probably completely deficient as a theoretical term and maybe even meaningless. Uh, but but I think the, the the charitable thing to do here is to try to to think of some a very liberal account of what the intuitive would be. And I I pick three. I'm, I, I I consider a number of others, but I think these are these are three, and I sort of and then take the disjunction of these. So one of these, the first, which goes through almost all the literature on, on intuitions, is that they have a certain kind of distinctive phenomenology mm -hmm. that's supposed to be a mark uh, of the intuitive. Uh, another that pops up in lots of the literature is that they they rely on conceptual competence in a peculiar way. Sometimes that's described as relying solely on conceptual competence. In other words, it's the kind of judgments that you, you can make without relying on quote-unquote empirical evidence, but all you need is your conceptual competence. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the second kind of diagnostic. Uh, the third kind of diagnostic is simply one where they have a certain special epistemic status, maybe roughly described as they, they can justify, but they need no justification, so they have that kind of special status. Now, each of those, I think, can be interpreted in different ways again. But so what I do is I say, well, if all of those three are absent, there's no evidence of anything like that, that's at least a bit of evidence that there's no reliance on the intuitive. 
So I, I have a very, very sort of liberal account of what would count as evidence of a reliance on the intuitive. And then what I find in all these cases is an absence of all of that. That was the surprising part when I did the sort of empirical work here. So just to take a, a concrete case, uh, for me, the, the best case... Also, let me say first what I think is a very bad case. I think Gettier cases have been discussed in almost, you know, like 80 to 90 percent of all papers on this. Uh, That's the one case that people focus on. And I think it's uh, it's an extremely unusual case. Uh, I don't think in general what people say about it is right. But I think even no matter what, you should not be focusing on that case. I think it's, it's a very bad example of thought experiments and philosophy because it has so many peculiar features. So I think uh, a very realistic case is Perry's case or set of cases. In the paper, The Essential Indexical, those are... Most of us know those. Uh, they're incredibly influential. They're fantastic cases in a way. They, they brought our attention to very, very important features. They've generated incredibly interesting literature and so on and so forth. So, And there are cases in the most straightforward uh, way. And so to remind the listeners of, of the, the most famous one of those, it's Perry walking around in the supermarket. He's noticing a messy shopper. He's thinking that shopper needs to rearrange the bags in his cart, not realizing that he's the messy shopper. He wanders around looking and looking. And it's only at the point where he realizes I am the messy shopper, where there's an emphasis on I, that's when he stops and starts rearranging his own shopping bags and clean up after himself. Yeah. And so and so Perry's question is, well, what? What happened what, here? There's this, he had a belief. It was a belief about himself because he was the messy shopper. Suddenly he had this first personal belief and something happened. Um, now, is there, so now here's a question you can ask, given the kinds of diagnostics that are, the th- for example, the three kinds of diagnostics that I outlined earlier. Yeah, yeah. Can we find a presence of any of those three in a judgment that is being made about that case? So that's the procedure that I had. I said, I say, well, let's look at Perry's paper. And then, you know, there's more than a thousand papers written about this later. So I think we shouldn't look just at his paper. We should look at the larger context of that literature. But, but for right now, let's just look at that paper. Is there any evidence in that paper that he thought it was important what kind of phenomenology he had when he thought about the difference between that guy's making a mess and I'm making a mess? And there simply isn't any evidence in that paper or in any later discussion that the phenomenology made any difference whatsoever. Is there any reason to think that he relied or tried to rely solely on his conceptual competence when he made a judgment about the difference? And again, the answer is no. There's clearly no attempt by Perry or by other people in that tradition to rely solely on their conceptual competence. Is there any claim in that paper about the difference, the, the juncture where he switches from that guy is messing a mess to I'm making a mess? Is there any point in the paper where a claim is made that has some kind of special epistemic status of the kind I described earlier, that it it justifies but is not in need of justification? That's a very tricky question to answer, but 
I go through many different <laughs> interpretations of that and many attempts to look at it. And uniformly, I think the conclusion you'll come to if you look carefully at it is that the answer is no. In effect, what happens in Perry's case is you find someone drawing our attention to a very important and interesting phenomena. And as Perry says straight off, he says, this is all incredibly puzzling. <laughs> so you react to that with puzzlement, not with any kind of judgment of the sort that the intuition or centrality proponents would predict. And then there's a number of theories being considered. I think the paper goes through six or seven theories about what you could say. Arguments, considerations, evidence is given for and against each and every one of those possible reactions to the case. And then at the end, he has a tentative conclusion. But the empirical claim that I'm making about that text is that at no point will you find anything that's properly characterized as, as intuitive. And so, yes, as you said, I, I this was just a, one illustration of this. And I go through... Uh, a whole bunch of other cases. I talk about Burge and Thompson's violinist. Talk about trolley mm -hmm. cases, uh, lottery cases, true temp, fake Barnes, relativism. Um, right. Of Bernard Williams and personal identity, Chalmers and zombies, and in, in all these cases, the pattern sort of continues. Uh, they pattern with the Perry cases I've described, it not with the what I think is a caricature of philosophy as we find in those who say it's intu intuition-based. Well, how about, I mean, let me just try a different case. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking of uh, in philosophy of language slash mind uh, various Burgess or Putnam's cases for externalism. You know, we imagine the twin earth or the uh, arthritis case and um or or block Ned Block's uh, China body, you know, against arguments against functionalism, and in these cases, um, there's not so much. There doesn't seem to be as extensive sort of discussion, maybe as as in Perry. Um, but the basic idea, and again, maybe maybe this is just caricature, but. Uh, you know, you, you construct the thought experiment. Uh, you've got this guy on Earth and a guy on Twin Earth, or you have the people of China arranged in a certain way. Um, and then the judgment is elicited, you know, surely, you know, uh, the guy on Earth is thinking about H2O and the one on uh, Twin Earth is thinking about XYZ, or surely functionalism is false because, uh, you know, the we... Because intuitively, you know, the people of China are not instantiating, uh, are not that their instantiation of the functional role doesn't make them a mind um, or Burge's case. Um, so in those cases, it, it those seem, okay, they, they seem to fit the, the caricature or paradigm um, of the method of cases or, or, or thought experiments in which you construct a case, you elicit a judgment, and that's your, you know, that's your conclusion, right? Yeah. So, so I think that's what people believe. So, so yeah. let me. So I think what's what's very important here is to go back and really read these original texts. So. So when I started this, I was just going to do two or three cases like this, and then people said, every time I looked carefully at a text, it turned out that 
they fit the pattern of what I said just said about Perry. And then someone said, no, no, no you really got to go read, you know, right. Thompson and Violinist, or you got to go read this or that. Right, right. Uh, of course, I'd already read them, but I didn't really remember all the details. So I would go back and read them very carefully, and I'd be just shocked by how easy it was to say the kind of thing that I just said about Perry yeah. about any one of these cases. So, so, yeah, so the next case then after the Perry one is Burge that you just mentioned. And and I mean, maybe the case I'm even the most convinced about doesn't fit the caricature because Burge uh, makes a claim about how we would report uh, the mistaken patient who thinks she has arthritis in her thigh. Mm-hmm. And then, in effect, what he does for 30, 40 pages, and it's a fantastic paper, you know, he goes through endless number of possible objections reinterpretations of the claim she believes she has arthritis in her thigh which is it's not that there's this no she believes she has arthritis in her thigh end of story it isn't like that it's 30 pages of careful interpretation reinterpretation argumentation evidence adduced uh, all kinds of theories appealed to to justify what ends up being the correct initial response namely she does believe she has arthritis in her thigh and then certain consequences important consequences follow from that so so i think you you will find that that's that that's the empirical part of the project and i'm very happy to see people go and you know not just remember sort of roughly from their undergraduate days what these papers said. And I'm not saying you're doing that, but, I, you know, really go in and look at the, each sentence by sentence and you'll be very surprised to see to see how much how much of a simplification that caricature, or what I think to be a caricature, is. Now, I mean, there's, there's another level to this. Of course, sometimes some philosophers just say make a claim about something or other, and sometimes it's just a thought experiment, uh, and they don't argue for it, and they don't, they just assume it, they just say it. Uh, but again, that doesn't, that, that still is a, com- leaves it completely open whether that particular judgment is properly characterized as an intuitive one. There are many reasons why people say things in papers, mm-hmm. uh, without arguing for them or, you know, uh, that has nothing to do with anything having to do with intuitions. So, so every argument has premises. Uh, we can't argue for all our premises because we write like 20, 25 page long papers. So by the nature of writing and, and conversation, uh, we will say things that we don't argue for. So in many cases, things will be just said and assumed to be in the common ground of a conversation or the presumption being, yeah, if you ask me, I'll tell you why I think it. But none of that has anything to do with a reliance on the intuitive. That just has to do with the necessity of uh, having some assumptions in place when you argue for something. So the point of what I just said is sometimes you'll find things that are asserted, claimed, sometimes that's about a thought experiment, no arguments are given, but that doesn't, there's a big step towards saying that, you know, that is an intuition in the, in the significant philosophical sense, either it comes with a special phenomenology, it relies only on conceptual competence, uh, it has a special epistemic status, none of those things need be true. It could just be that, hey, I wrote a paper, I assume P, I'll write a next, next paper, we'll be defending P. So one way I do, you can, you can explore whether a claim in a particular article 
um, it's just of the kind that I described, just something that you know is, is open for further exploration in in future work, is to see whether the literature treats it in that way. So I think what you will find, for example, in the Twin Earth literature is, well, I think you'll find even in Putnam extensive discussion of all these things. But let's just suppose that Putnam never argued for what he said about Twin Earth. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's now... I don't know how many thousand papers written about this, and what you will find in the larger philosophical debate is extensive discussion of every possible alteration of, of, of alternative descriptions of those cases, and then defenses, arguments for and against. That, I think, doesn't prove that there is no intu- intuition there, but it still it, it throws so doubt on it, and it places, I think, the burden of proof, at least, on proponents of the intuition-driven picture of philosophy where where these judgments are have these distinctive characteristics of the intuitive well could could one give a um, I mean one of the uh, uh, responses uh, and again you, you do discuss this um, in the book is is just the idea that maybe uh, maybe intuitions play a role uh, in a somewhat weaker sense, um, and so one one of the uh, uh, one of the thoughts that I had was um, it, the idea that in, when we're using intuition pumps, um, the idea is to expose certain claims. You know, whether you want to um, consider them as sort of pre-theoretic common ground or some place to start a snap judgment that then gets uh, examined further. Uh, or some sort of a background uh, assumption. Um, and the idea is to elicit these judgments um, uh, in order to scrutinize them. And, and uh, you know, and, and philosophy is precisely about, uh, about doing that in a way that, in comparison, let's say science will take certain background assumptions for granted, and not just take certain background assumptions for granted, but also uh, in taking them for granted, for granted, there is there is really no um, effort within science itself, at least not in day to day science, uh, to to question those, to expose them, um, to criticize them. So, in that sense, um, does this practice um, actually do something that is methodologically? distinct um, and important, even if what's being done does not fit the, you know, the usual ways of, you know, the phenomenal, the specific phenomenology or the epistemic role or any of that that you use to characterize um, the use of intuitions. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think all those things you just said about philosophy it's true. I think philosophy is distinctive in, in many ways, and one of the maybe the most important ways that we question assumptions that no one else questions, and we we will bring out of the common ground, out, make it explicit assumptions that other people just take for granted. That's that's one of the reasons it's so wonderful to do philosophy is that we allow ourselves to do that. And that there's really nothing that we can't question. But that practice is is almost the opposite of what's being described by the proponents of the view that philosophy is intuition-driven. I mean, what you're describing is the attempt to make 
what others take to be implicit, what others take to have in the common ground, we make it explicit, and then we argue about it. <clears throat> so that, and that is, you know, that, it's not that that's incompatible, complete, you know, it rules out the intuition-driven picture, but it, it throws strong doubt on it, because now what you've done is you've, I don't know, take, take very radical claims, like you know, the church ones believing there are no beliefs, uh, not something that is questioned by most uh, anyone else. Uh, and what we we now have is not a set of intuitions or primitive, immediate judgments. We have complicated chains of reasoning, theorizing, evidence from all kinds of sources being brought to bear on the question of whether there are beliefs or not. That's not that doesn't fit very well, or maybe not at all, with the picture of these judgments being intuition-driven. So I think what you were describing is, yes, that's, that is a good picture of a very important feature of philosophical practice, but it isn't one that sits well with the assumption that we, at the foundation of everything we do, there are these special kinds of judgments called intuitions and that they drive everything we're doing. In fact, I think... What you're describing is a good way of thinking, of getting to a point where you realize that's false. <laughs> um, okay, so, well, you, you uh, in part one, I mean, to kind of move back in the book, uh, your first argument is, is an arg- what you call the argument from intuition talk. Um, and I know in the book you, you point people to the second one where you have the you know very very detailed and close discussion of cases, but in the first uh, in the first part you um, in the argument from intuition talk uh, you suggest various reinterpretations of how we should you know understand when people say intuitively p, um, and. Um, and you describe it as a kind of a, a verbal tick in ways that has somehow sprung up in in philosophy or analytic philosophy anyway could you could you describe that argument okay well just a little bit of background so i think one not unreasonable um pressure towards the view that we that philosophy is intuition driven or one reason for thinking that we analytic philosophers rely on intuitions is that we use those words so much. So that, I think, is, is a sort of the most immediate surface-level kind of reason to be driven towards what I take to be a wrong picture of what we're doing. You, you pick up a more or less arbitrary journal today, and you'll find people saying intuitively blah, 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 intuitively this, intuitively that, all over the place, and you might think, well, hey, look, that, how could you say we're not? <laughs> how can you say philosophy is not intuition driven? They use these words all the time. And so, so, that, so for someone like me who says philosophy is not intuition driven, uh, it's an interesting project to try to figure out what we're doing when we say things like that. Um, so there's, so that's the topic of the first part of the book in. I, again, I think it's very helpful to look in somewhat careful detail at particular texts and contexts in which those expressions are used and look at both the noun, the adverb, the adjective, uh, the verb, and, and they all have slightly different features. Very roughly the conclusion I come to, I mean, it's complicated because I think there are many different interpretations, and I, uh, <clears throat> but I, uh, maybe the easiest way to think about it 
is I see that kind of usage as not referring to or uh, indicating that we denote a source of evidence. It is, it's, a, it's a sort of speech act modifier most of the time is how I see it. So if you ask me, so here's a way to illustrate my thought about this. If you ask me, why didn't Sally come to the meeting today? And I say, I think she's in Paris. I haven't given you as an answer to the question that I that she is not at the meeting because I have that thought. Uh, that isn't the answer. The answer is that she's in Paris. I think that was put in there to hedge, to modify my assertion that she's in Paris. Right. So the answer to the question wasn't, Herman thinks that she is in Paris, and that's why she's not here, because she's so worried about him thinking that. I mean, that could be the case, but that's not the natural interpretation. The natural interpretation is um, she's not here because she's in Paris, and I think was there just to modify that speech act. And so I think intuitively, blah, 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 is a way of being modest in various kinds of ways, being careful, being cautious, not being too assertive. Uh, just what that means, not being too assertive, hedging, that's what the chapter is about. And I, mm-hmm. I go through that in, in somewhat of a detail. I, I think there are different ways of being cautious in that way. So, so, I mean, just to sketch quickly, I think one way to hedge is to say, you know, roughly speaking, I haven't thought very carefully about this yet. Um, yeah. Another way is to say, Ah, I assume we can agree that, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there are other options as well. I mean, sometimes I think, uh, and this goes back to something you mentioned in your question, I I think we just, we do use these kinds of locutions far too much, and it's become a kind of um, verbal fashion. Uh, Just how it come about is a bit of a mystery. So I think in many cases, we could just take it away and nothing very important would remain. Nothing much important would be missing if we took it away. Yeah. So so I think one strategy is just get rid of it. What you would lose is maybe a bit of modesty and caution. Uh Uh, In other cases, you could try to make that modesty and caution a bit more explicit. But whichever way you go, there's no reason to think that just because we use those terms, uh, we are committing to or talking about a source of evidence or a certain special kind of evidence. That's the thesis anyway, in, in part one of the book. Yeah. Um, well, there, uh, you also have a very interesting critique uh, of, of experimental philosophy, um, which basically, uh, I mean, the whole idea of experimental philosophy, that whole movement, the recent movement, is is all about saying it depends on this uh, assumption or, uh, that uh, philosophy or analytic philosophy to now is has been a um, a prioristic thought experiment driven intuition driven enterprise and and we need to get away from that we need to actually you know not just intuit what we would say or what the folk think uh, but actually go out there and do experiments and find out what do the folk think. Um, and on your view, this this is a mistake uh, because, as you put it, it, it attacks a practice that, that in fact, does not exist. Um, 
So what do you, on your view, um, I mean, you can, you know, expand on that on your critique, uh, but also um, what do you think then that experimental philosophy um, is doing um, uh, that's worthwhile uh, or, or what it is doing at all um, if it's not, if it can't be attacking a practice that doesn't exist? So uh, as I mentioned to you, the project that I ran here with uh, Jessica Brown for the last few years, we've had a a number of experimental philosophers that I think (laughs) they're all very good philosophers in many ways. But So I would wish to have something very positive to say in response to this question. But the truth is that I... I, I really think that movement is just an absolute, complete failure, and and it and it there isn't anything good about it. So, I, and I wish I didn't have to say that, but that's that. It really is what I think. I think it is fundamentally based on the assumption that what we do as philosophers is founded on intuitive judgments. That assumption is not true. So, I don't think there is anything for the movement to do. I think. Uh, going around checking on people's intuitions has nothing to do with what philosophers do because philosophers don't rely on intuitions. So now you might think, and there are many attempts when I say this, uh, experimental philosophers say to me, well, you know, we can, we can rephrase the whole project in ways that depends much less or maybe not at all on the assumption that intuitions are at the center of philosophy. Uh, I still haven't seen that done in any way um, that is even remotely plausible. I mean, just, I think it's when, when you encounter these attempts to reinterpret that tradition, mm-hmm. it is worth going back looking at what they really wrote. I mean, you know, it sounds maybe hostile what I'm saying to XFI, but I think it's worth remembering that Stitch and the original experimental philosophers were extremely hostile to contemporary philosophy. I mean, their goal, Stitch's goal, and you know, many writings, and in public, you know, front page of the New York Times is analytic philosophy is dead. We can't keep doing philosophy the way we've been doing. So they were incredibly negative, incredibly critical of, of the kind of work that we are doing. Um, go back and look at those criticisms, and you will find over and over again that they are inextricably linked to the assumption that philosophy is intuition-based. If you take away that assumption, the criticisms simply fall apart. Now, I think, you know, here's the kind of um, thing you could try. You could say, yeah, but look, don't you want philosophers to check whether they have biases? You know, if it turns out that... Uh, we're all biased because we are, you know, we have certain features, and people with those features tend to make judgments of a certain kind. Isn't it nice to have a group of people who keeps us honest in that way? Right. Um, so, you know, that that would be one strategy to say you know, what they're really doing is trying to discover uh, maybe heuristics and biases in in philosophy, and. <clears throat> You know, put in that kind of terms, those terms, that sounds nice. Who wouldn't want to have some people checking on whether we're biased? But that just isn't a reasonable description of what anyone in that movement has even begun to do. Because 
I think there are ways, there are, of course, there are very interesting questions about the biases of philosophers, like are we, what kind of gender bias, what's the source of gender biases, are we biased in favor of certain kinds of uh, subfield over other, certain types of writing rather than others, you know, those are all incredibly interesting things. But none of that gets close to the sort of work that they have been doing. What they thought they could do, and that still think they can do, is go into actual live philosophical debates, like the debate about uh, nature of knowledge, and make progress either critically or positively in that debate by checking on non-philosophers' so-called intuitions. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to get us anywhere, because those aren't the sorts of things that play a role dialectically in those debates. And of course, it's possible to think that in those debates, philosophers, suppose, suppose you think philosophers have been biased in favor of contextualism mm -hmm. in epistemology. I mean, but that's not an argument that you can show or engage with by checking on undergraduates' responses to you know, their intuitions about cases. The way we do that is we write philosophy papers saying, look, here is a bias in the literature. People have assumed such and such and such and such. I mean, there is a study of bias in philosophical texts, but that's just what we do when we do real philosophy. I mean, just I'm just writing a book. Of this. Josh Dever and I have just finished a book on the sort of Perry-type cases. And yeah, we think there is a bias in that literature. We think it's biased in favor of the thought that indexicals play a specially important role in an explanation and rationalization of actions. And we think people haven't thought enough about that. But that's not something, but that bias isn't something you criticize by going around with questionnaires. It's something you question by doing real philosophy. Well, um, okay, so let me, let me just push this a little bit, a little farther. I mean, not that I'm, uh, you know, deeply in the experimental philosophy camp myself, but um, somebody might say, well, uh, as you put it, you you suggest you don't you don't elaborate, but you suggest a sort of a no th what you call a no theory theory of thought experiments, where um, where they are, as you put it, um, devices to draw attention to philosophically interesting aspects of the world. And um, fr from that point of view, could uh, X five be contributing um, devices that draw attention to philosophically inter interesting aspects of the world? No, I don't. I don't look, you could call X five whatever you want, but yeah. I mean, you just make the label up to do something other than what they've been doing. But yeah. if it is the kind of thing that was started by Stitch and his pupils, and that consists at its core of an exploration of non philosophers' intuition, they're studied through questionnaires and other ways to check on immediate reactions to various kinds of cases. Uh, I don't see... I mean, look, I can't prove that that wouldn't be helpful. Uh, yeah, it, it just yeah. seems completely hopeless to me as a way of engaging with... If you, if you really start thinking seriously about cases, so take, again, the Perry case. I just don't see any addition uh -huh. to that literature coming from the sort of work that I just described, no. Yeah, again, this, these are you know, empirical, it's just not a very hope, I'm not very hopeful, let me put okay. it like that. It doesn't look like the sort of thing that would bring that debate 
further along. Almost every possible position, every possible view you could have of what first-person belief or denunc belief is has been explored. What we need at this point is a unification of different theories, understanding of those phenomena in language, thought, action, perception. We need big theories that bring those things together. Those are incredibly complex issues, and they're the sorts of issues that you solve by doing good philosophy. Not yeah. you know, of a just completely standard form. I mean I don't and I don't have a I don't have a, a procedure I can't tell you how to do good philosophy. Okay? I mean that's just very difficult, but but it isn't something we need questionnaires for, as far as I can tell. Okay. Um well at the, uh, one of the uh, one of the suggestions, I mean, you consider the question of, you know, how, how did this all begin? How did, how, did, how did we all start using the intuition talk or developing thought experiments to elicit uh, snap judgments or pre-theoretic, you know, assumptions? Um, and you mentioned Chomsky um, and his appeals to uh, grammaticality judgments. Um, and these, you might say, one might say is a really are uh, um, theoretically important um, a methodology in which theoretically important judgments you know are being uh, elicited all right in order to in his case you know construct a uh, a grammar a, a basic grammar um, Could this, um, I mean, did, well, look, maybe you could say a bit about how that may have influenced, uh, how you think that may have influenced um, philosophers in in their attempts to elicit judgments, and why perhaps that case really really is different from the philosophical case. Yeah, I just briefly about the bigger question that you started with. So, how did this all? This, if I'm right, this false self-conception come about. I think that is incredibly interesting, and I wish I was more of a history of historian of ideas to, uh, you know, and I'd also have more patience to, to try to resolve that question. I simply just don't know. I consider a number of options at the sort of very briefly in the first part of the book. None of which strike me as particularly satisfactory. Uh, I just, I think it's incredibly striking that prior to the 80s almost, you, you wouldn't find any leading philosophers who had this picture of, of philosophy. And it, it wasn't part of you know, Frege, Russell, Wittgenstein, Carnap, Quine, Davidson, uh, even Rawls. You know, Rawls talks about intuitions, but he didn't think that was what drove philosophy more generally. I mean, more or less anyone that you pick as your favorite philosopher. Uh, it would be very hard pressed to find passages in which their methodological views were that uh, philosophy at its foundation was driven by intuitions about thought experiments. So something happened, just what it is, is an interesting question. Um, Jako Hintika suggests in a paper that one thing that made a big difference was Chomsky. And uh, maybe that's true. I just... I find it a bit implausible that he had that much influence across philosophy, but 
uh, uh, it's an open question. Mm-hmm. And then to your more specific question, how should we think about what Chomsky is doing? I don't think it is very helpful to think of him as as claiming that intuition in the sort of interesting philosophical sense is what draw is what you find at the as the basic evidence for a grammar or a syntax. Um, I mean, first of all, this view wasn't worked out in any detail about what intuitions are in Chomsky, so it's very hard to tell. When you ask him about it, he disowned the term. He's not. He says, no, I didn't mean anything that has to do with anything interesting in the philosophical tradition. I mean, in, in a recent book on this, Peter Ludlow, a book that just came out this year, uh, uh, he, Ludlow describes the entire Chomskyan program without talking about intuitions at all. He just talks about competent speakers' judgments about grammaticality. Uh, and I guess that's my preferred way of thinking about it. Um, of course, then there's a story in Chomsky about the connection between those judgments and the language faculty. And you could spell that out in various ways. But no matter how you do that, there isn't a similar story to be told um, about what happens to our judgments about, say, Perry's case. There's no, even if you could tell a story like that in the grammar case, uh, it doesn't generalize in the required way to to philosophy. But so, yeah, so I'm open to the thought that in other disciplines, maybe in mathematics, uh, maybe in syntactic theory, people do something that's well described as relying on intuitions at a certain level. I mean, I'm a bit dubious, but but that wasn't the topic of the book. So if it turns out that that's true about mathematics, say, or about syntax, all it shows, as far as I'm concerned, is that in that respect, those disciplines differ from philosophy. Okay, so I think we have time for maybe one question, and I did want to um, raise the issue of conceptual analysis um, and... um, conceptual truth. Um, So on your view, um, uh, there isn't any real conceptual analysis going on. Um, I mean, that's that's a very rough way to put it. But um, as a major uh, methodological um, aspect of analytic philosophy, that's not what people are in the main um, doing. Um, could you, could you could, since since many people do uh, see uh, anal- analytic philosophy as involved deeply uh, in conceptual analysis, um, uh, perhaps you can just discuss your view on on that issue in particular. Yeah, I, I think it's fairly easy to put. So, just as I think many very very good philosophers are mistaken when they describe their activity as being based on intuition, I think lots of very, very good philosophers mistakenly believe that what they engage in is something properly called conceptual analysis. And I mean, there are many levels to this criticism, but one is the more purely empirical approach that I was talking about earlier and that that mirrors the thing I was talking about with respect to intuitions. Roughly speaking, tell me what the characteristics are of something like conceptual analysis, and let's go and look at philosophical texts and see whether that's what's really going on. And the conclusion, uh, here's my hypothesis, what you will find is that isn't what's going on. Whatever you think conceptual analysis is, 
you'll be surprised to see that that really isn't what goes on. People appeal to evidence of all kinds in all these important debates. There isn't an attempt to restrict oneself simply to judgments made uh, relying on nothing but conceptual competence. You just don't find people doing that. That's an empirical claim. There's, of course, additional issues here that I don't go into fully in this book, and this is a way in which my book differs from Timothy Williamson. So, so Williamson's book is a full-out attack on the idea that there is such a thing as conceptual analysis. Williamson uh, argues, and I, I think these arguments are incredibly strong, uh, that, that just there is no such thing. And of course, if there's no such thing, then we don't do it. <laughs> So you'd have to reply to those arguments. If you, if you even thought that anyone did it, you'd have to respond to the Williamson-type arguments. But I, don't, but I only point this out in the book, and I don't, I don't think that I can you know, add anything really to what Williamson has to say. I mean, one, one thing I think is very helpful to think about here is that maybe the best work done on the on the notion of analyticity and conceptual truth and so on. Mm -hmm. In contemporary philosophies, Paul Boghossian's, Paul Boghossian makes very modest claims. It's, it's very interesting to look at the debate between him and Williamson because well, Boghossian started out trying to show that there were certain kinds of um, judgments that you could make if you were a competent user of the word if mm -hmm. uh, that relied only on your conceptual competence. Um, he then retreated after criticism from Williamson to and that there were certain judgments. But so it's like trying, you know, if he succeeds, he will have shown that and is a word such that when you're competent with it, there are certain uh, judgments you're justified in based solely on your conceptual competence. But that's a very modest claim. I mean, and, and this is from the leading proponent of this idea. One little word, and, is very hard to see how that expands throughout the rest of philosophy. And it's interesting to contrast Boghossian with the people who make sort of grandiose claims about conceptual analysis in philosophy. They never try to do the kind of detailed work that Boghossian is doing. So, um, so I think when you actually go get down to doing the hard work of sh you know, showing that uh, conceptual analysis can be done, you'll feel very restricted and might be much less inclined to make these broad claims about its role in philosophy. Um, well, um, we are close to out of time. Um, so I just wanted to uh, ask you, you mentioned earlier you have a, you're working on another book or you've just you're you're completing uh, another book, and maybe you could tell us what that is about. Uh, well, it's called, uh, called uh, I guess the current title is uh, Indexicality, Perspective, and the First Person, and it's about the role of first-person thought and indexical thought in, in various areas of philosophy. So it spans uh, many philosophical fields. We talk about the role of indexicality and first-person thought in, in action, in epistemology, um, in um, perception, and, and in various other areas where it's often assumed that indexical thought can do distinctive and important explanatory work. And our 
general thesis is that indexicality plays much less of a role than is often assumed. It, it, it is a sort of anti-Perry uh, Perry book, anti-Perry and anti-Lewis book. So you could also think of it as, as the myth of the first person. That's another way to uh-huh. think of this, that there isn't that kind of distinctive type of thought that plays an important explanatory role. But yeah, this is a very different project again. I saw there's, is there any contemplated follow-up to this particular uh, book? The, to, philosophy to, the, to, yeah. philosoph- to the intuition book? Yes. Yeah, yeah so, so this is, so, so, I, so I've sort of finished that indexicality book, and what, what I, I'm very interested in now is, there's one chapter in that book where I argue that the term intuition is defective, that it is a theoretically not just useful useless but uh not just useless but maybe even meaningless because it is uh, such a mess the way that term is used mm-hmm. i i hedge that claim in the book because it should be part of a much larger theory of defective terms and so i want to develop that theory much more about when theoretical terms are deficient and maybe so deficient that they are completely meaningless I think it's it's a very ubiquitous phenomenon in philosophy. Lots of terms are used in horrible ways, ways that are detrimental to inquiry. But it's not so the book. But I don't, I don't want that book to be just critical in that way. I also think it's a sort of a part of a more broad project about how philosophy or language can be critical and constructive at the same time. Because what I just described was a sort of philosophy of language move that criticized and evaluated a linguistic practice, didn't just describe it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm interested more generally in how philosophy of language can be evaluative of linguistic practices rather than just descriptive of them. Mm. That sounds that sounds very interesting. Um, and it, it's connected to lots of work. For example, work done by Sally Hasslinger um, on... Uh, terms like woman, and, uh, yeah. So, so there's so it has kind of wide-reaching implications, and I think the historical precedence is enormous. I mean, everything that started philosophy of language and maybe analytic philosophy as we know it in Frege and Russell and Carnap, part of its central motivation was the thought that certain parts of language were defective and that it had to be fixed. So we've sort of completely given up on that somehow. That has gone away, and all we're doing is descriptive semantics. But I think we should in some ways go back to their motivation, though in a very different way from how they were doing it. That's it. Um, yeah, I would think this 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 problem is, is not just in philosophy. I think in science in particular, there's also a, a great deal of, uh, of defective discourse. Um, which has yeah, and I think I, I think it's very interesting to think about different kinds of defects and different diagnostics for defectiveness and so on, and mm-hmm. and that whole field hasn't really been worked out. So I'm kind of thinking of this as a very big project, as you say, for theoretical terms more generally. Yeah, I will. I I look forward to to reading what you have to say. Um, but right now we are we are just out of time. Um, so I just wanted to thank you very much for a very engaging conversation. Okay, thanks very much for talking to me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
You've been listening to an interview with Herman Capellan, Professor of Philosophy at the RK Philosophical Research Center at the University of St. Andrews. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.